This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. We've got the space race, the race against the COVID Delta variant, and the race to sustainability all top of mind this week, Tim, with our guests. But before we do, Tim, we've got to talk about where you were this week on location with Jeff Bezos and the Blue Origin crew in West Texas. Yeah, I was in Van Horn, Texas, Carol, the high desert of Mm. West Texas, not that far from El Paso, but about 100 miles from pretty much anything. Van Horn is this tiny town, about 2,000 people. But it's the jumping off point for uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, space race. Command engine start. Two, one. Blue Control Bezos, best day ever. A great place for space flight. It is a great place for space flight, uh, except in the afternoons <laughs> the when it gets like a little that. windy. <laughs> I know. There were some weather problems. Also on that subject, the future of space, it's bigger than Bezos, Branson, and Musk. This is a Bloomberg big take. Yeah, it's a great story. All that to come. But Tim, let's get back to your trip. So let's talk a little bit more about you being on the ground. First of all, you had to get on an airplane. Yeah, I did for the first time in, gosh, since last March of, of 2020. Yeah, since March of 2020, it um, was crowded. There was not an empty seat on, on either of the flights that I ended up taking, Carol. The big takeaway that I had, apart from everybody was totally mass compliant on the airlines, uh, was just how crowded everything was in every airport that I, that I went through. There are no direct flights to El Paso from New York City. So both times when I flew to and from, there were layovers. Crowds, 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 really long lines for, for coffee, really long lines for restaurants. I couldn't help but thinking, hey, this is the labor shortage that we keep hearing about. That's what I was just thinking as yeah. you were talking. It's real. And you saw it, it firsthand. Is. So you were headed, of course, to West Texas to catch up with Jeff Bezos and the Blue Origin crew. Uh, what's interesting is we've had a lot going on in the private space race as of late. What was different about the Bezos trip versus Richard Branson and his crew? Well, they're really apples and oranges when you think about how they get to what they define as space. So the first thing is you notice is, is the craft and the difference between the, the Bezos and Branson crafts. Uh, Branson's is much more of a, a space plane, and it's indeed ferried by this huge dual fuselage aircraft to about 45,000, 50,000 feet, and then it's dropped from the belly of the craft. And then it shoots straight up like a, a rocket would, but it appears much more like an airplane. And the way that it comes back to, to Earth, it glides back to Earth and lands on a runway like a traditional airplane or maybe a, a, a better comparison would be like the actual space shuttle mm-hmm. would land. Uh, Bezos was on a legit rocket. I mean, this is like when we think about rockets and going to space, like that's what what Bezos did. And the launch profile was really similar to Alan Shepard's launch profile back in 1961. I mean, it was a capsule on on top of a rocket uh, that uh, shot straight into the sky and kept going for a couple minutes. The capsule was released and uh, the capsule went beyond what's identified as the the international definition of of space, the Kármán line, 100 kilometers high. And then they came back down in a capsule, um, three parachutes, three drogue chutes. Uh, and I think among the most innovative things about this is something that we see from SpaceX, too, which is that reusable uh, booster. That thing went almost as high as the capsule, came down and landed right where it was supposed to, just a couple miles from where it took off. You you know this because I've talked about this. My dad was involved in the early yeah. space race and involved in guidance systems with all the uh, early Apollo and Gemini missions. But what's interesting is I think he would be blown away that you are now reusing rockets because that's not the way it was. No, you know, I saw somebody point this out on Twitter. This is not my, my, my original thought, but he or she basically said... Uh, 
imagine every time you flew on a 737 that they would have to dispose of it. Exactly. And that's that's how we've gotten to space in the past, right? Disposing of this stuff. Right. So the reusability is huge. This particular stack, the capsule and rocket combination that Bezos went on, uh, had it already been flown twice before. It's pretty remarkable. And then to see it come down and hit its mark yeah. <laughs> is just mind-blowing. Um, would you go? I, I think I would. I, I think I would. would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, Bezos said like, hey, if if this is a vote of confidence, right? Like if it's not safe enough for me to go, then it's not safe enough for anyone to go. Big time. Big time. You and I have talked a lot in the last couple of weeks. You and I both get excited about this. I have to say uh, I was glued to my phone watching Jeff Bezos and his crew go up. I just couldn't stop watching. Uh, there are those, though, that I even talked about on the day. I'm like, did you see it? And they're like, yeah, you couldn't pay me to go up in there. And just we're so dismissive yeah. of it. Some would say we have some really big problems in our world. Why are we spending so much time, so much energy, even as a news organization, why are we focusing on it um, when there are some other big problems in this world? There is, though, significance to continue space exploration. Jeff Bezos talked about it a lot. He did. And I think that criticism is absolutely fair and, and absolutely warranted. And in fact, it was brought up to Jeff Bezos and, and his crew ahead of the launch. And Bezos, I think, had a pretty good answer. He said, we have to do both. And uh, there is room to do both. One thing that he talked about a lot after he landed was how important it is to preserve Earth and mm -hmm. in order to do that. And this is part of the long-term vision of Blue Origin. I mean, Bezos has been working on this for 21 years. Blue Origin was established in the year 2000. Right. And his long-term vision is moving the polluting producing activities that we do here on Earth, moving those to space. Because he said over and over again, Earth is the best planet that we've got in the solar system. But the way things are going right now with population growth, right. with energy usage, it's not going to support future generations. I mean, look at the past week in terms of climate change and the floods we've seen in Germany, uh, the floods that we've seen in yeah. China. I mean, the fires out in the Pacific Northwest. This is not just the last week, but the f last few weeks here. It's just a reminder that our climate here on Earth is definitely at risk. It is. Uh, I mean, you were you were here in New York, but as I was in Texas, I kept seeing mm -hmm. posts and hearing mm -hmm. from people about the sky here, yep. thousands of miles away, the smoke from fires making its way to the East Coast. All right, coming up, we're going to do more on the new space race and how the future of space is bigger than Bezos, Branson, and Musk. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to stay with the private missions into space, a story that caught our attention. It was a Bloomberg Big Take, featured also in Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Tim, it was about how the future of space it is bigger than Bezos, Branson, and Musk. But before we get into that discussion, Bloomberg's Janet Wu takes a look at the historic flight and what happened right after the touchdown. Two, one. A mere 10-minute mission, years and billions of dollars in the making. How it felt? Oh, my God! Spaceflight has been the dream of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos since childhood. In his first words post-touchdown, Bezos thanked the team. All of the engineers at Blue Origin who have toiled hard to get this done. And then this surprising remark. I also I want to thank... Every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer, because you guys paid for all of this. He also spoke of the implications and impact of space travel. This is important. Uh, we're going to build a road to space 
so that our kids and their kids can build the future. And we need to do that. We need to do that to solve the problems here on Earth. This is not about escaping Earth. Much has been made of the billionaire's race to space, with Bezos, Elon Musk, and Richard Branson, who did his suborbital flight a couple weeks ago, all making space travel their passion projects. Along for the historic ride, the first paying passenger, the 18-year-old son of a Dutch venture capitalist, and 82-year-old Wally Funk, the Mercury 13 aviator, who was denied entry into the astronaut ranks because of her gender. We had a great time. I want to go again fast. <laughs> Damon and Funk just became the youngest and oldest people to reach space. So what happened up there? A lot of fun that included throwing candy around. Who wants a Skittle? Oh, yeah, yeah. Turn See if you catch this in The American billionaire's race to space will lessen dependence on Russia for launches. And Bezos says demand and innovation will bring the cost down. In part from criticism over the billions spent since Blue Origin was founded in 2000, Bezos announced two major grants. DreamCorp founder Van Jones and chef Jose Andres of World Central Kitchen were given $100 million each to gift to philanthropies, including their own. As for Blue Origin, two more flights with humans are expected this year. Bezos says they are approaching $100 million in ticket sales. Asked if he will go again. Hell yes. <laughs> How fast can you refuel that thing? Let's go. Janet Wu, Bloomberg News. Thanks to Janet Wu for that report. For more on the future of space, we also caught up with Bloomberg Businessweek features writer Ashley Vance. He's also the author of Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the quest for a fantastic future. I mean, you know, that's the space tourism sort of piece of all this. And then it's kind of these layers of building a true economy for the first time in low Earth orbit around the Earth. So we've got the space tourism, you've got SpaceX doing really well, sending satellites and, and people to space. A company in New Zealand called Rocket Lab has already sent up dozens of rockets carrying satellites. You know, if you look at the, the launch manifest of all these rocket companies, we're due to send up about 100,000 satellites over the next decade, which would be about, uh, <laughs> you know, there's currently about 3,000 satellites around the Earth. Wow. And so you, it's just the point that I wanted to make is that this has been this dream for a long time, and, and, you know, it's still just a handful of governments, really, that have controlled space for the last six decades, and, and that's changing now. Well, I love this line in your story. What happens up above us will be one of the most important economic and technological stories of the next decade, whether or not Musk ever settles Mars. Uh, it's just like in some ways, or is it different from the space race back in the 60s? I mean, which led to a lot of R&D, a lot of, you know, innovation, and just different thinkings about our world. What we're talking about in the story a lot is, is something that's just it's kind of more basic in some ways. It's mm. building a the next great computing infrastructure. I think of it as like a computing shell around the earth full of communication satellites, imaging, science, all kinds of things. And, and you know, just like we had the Internet build out over the last 20, 30 years, um, you know, I think this is going to be where the, the sort of next part of the cloud goes is actually into the heavens. You talk about um, a senior at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. It's a great story, and I think it's a great example of what you are talking about more broadly here. Tell us who this person is. Decker Eveleth, am I saying it correctly? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, so this is an example of how far we've come, and people ha- don't always notice. You know, a couple weeks ago, the story broke all throughout the news that that uh, we'd uncovered about 120 missile silos in China that had not previously been disclosed. It seemed to be evidence that they're in the process of a very large nuclear weapons build-out. You know, in the past, this kind of thing would have been discovered by a military satellite, um, in this case, it was an undergrad <laughs> at Reed College, Decker, who, who was on his laptop, and he was using just commercial satellite imagery from a company called Planet Labs. And it happens to be, you know, these, these silos are in a desert. And so even the military satellites would not usually be looking there because um, it's not a, a point of interest. But in this case, Planet has so many imaging satellites that it photographs every spot on the Earth every day and so they had you know hundreds to thousands of images over years of this spot Ashley, you drew a, a parallel here just that shows how far we've come in such a short period of time roughly 70 years you write that when the u.s went to space looking for soviet weapons of mass destruction in the late 1950s it had to use rockets to carry bulky satellites into orbit where they took photos and then they dropped their film canisters back to earth to be rather incredibly <laughs> caught in midair by planes. This was the start of the satellite imagery, you know, business as it was. And that was at the end of 1959. We basically had to develop rocket technology, new optics, and, and all these these amazing ways to catch film canisters coming back to Earth all at once. And, and it didn't work very often at the beginning. And they finally figured it out. But then, you know, you cut forward all this time, and any one of us now could open up um, this Planet Lab software and start poking around and, and go look for things. That was Bloomberg Businessweek features writer Ashley Vance, author of Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the quest for a fantastic future. A reminder, it's not just about the trip itself, but the implications and what we find out and what we can improve upon here on Earth. It's hard to imagine that 60 years ago, we'd be sitting here and have the ability to have satellites deliver internet. Yeah to places all over the world like Elon Musk is trying to do because we didn't even know what the internet was 60 years ago. And I think that's a really important way for us to think about what could be in the future when it comes to space. Exactly. Still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, you know space was a big story this week. So too was the COVID Delta variant. And on that, we've got a warning for everyone. That's next. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. The world of financial markets obsessed this week with the COVID Delta variant. And in another Bloomberg Big Take this week, a story that's also in the new issue of the magazine. It's a story, Tim, with a warning. That more COVID variants are coming and the U.S. isn't ready to track them. Bloomberg News U.S. healthcare reporter Cynthia Coons wrote all about it. She joined us along with the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, Joel Weber. We actually started talking about this story um, a while ago. And the thing that just made me um, my ears perk up was because at that time, variants, I don't, they were not part of the bigger conversation. Right. And it, and Cynthia was like, you know, there's this, the threat that variants are going to come at us, we're going to have m- more than one of them. But the, the bigger thing is, we don't actually know how to track them, the US. Other people actually do do a better job of this. But the sort of the, the takeaway from the story is genetic 
sequencing is not something that has really been prioritized in the U.S. So the little kernel of hope is that there is this little patchwork quilt that I think we're going to talk about a little bit. But but Cynthia, why is the U.S. not doing genetic sequencing at scale, and and why are we effectively flying blind without it? Yeah, well, it's a money issue. Um, there's no real center now. The CDC has some money from the Biden administration, but they're giving it out. It's not moving very quickly from what I hear from scientists in the field. But when it came down to it, we had these genomic labs at academic universities and they would seek, you know, grants or they would apply for money and they would get rejected. And this happened to so many scientists. I know one turned to crowdfunding, but he didn't get much money from that. Another one actually was very dejected and about to run out of money. And someone who turned her down five months prior because they didn't realize the importance of variant tracking came back and said, wait, wait, we want to give you money. So she reapplied. So it was a lot of really slapdash getting money where and how you could. And it wasn't, hey, here's a substantial amount of money. It's going to be invested through, say, academic centers and different parts of the healthcare system to get this done. Why is it so important that we do this sequencing? So this is how we find mutations. And so a virus like COVID is changing all the time, and you have to do a lot of sequencing to figure out what's important in that. There are tons of changes within the virus that don't matter. Right. And to matter, it has to be you know significant in terms of its infectiousness or how it harms a person. Potentially, they get sicker, things of that nature, or it affects younger patients worse, or something like that. There are distinct things that make mutations concerning. But the very virus is changing all the time. So you need to be keeping an eye on it in such a huge way in order to get enough data to say that this specific mutation is doing X, Y, or Z to patients. And once you have that data, then you have a better handle on how to enact measures. This is how they decide, say, the mask mandate may come back or there may be longer quarantine times. Versus waiting to see the impact on the population. Is Waiting that, to see is too late because then the disease just continues. Saying, the exactly, exactly. Okay. That's kind of how you would think of it in terms of the best case scenario if public health officials had the information fast enough. Okay. They could lock it down really fast. Granted, it feels like we're in a post-lockdown world, but not necessarily. Just in the U.S., it doesn't. It seems like that might not be the next. That might not be a strategy that's readily employed at this stage. But still, it could be if we know we have a highly infectious or highly deadly version. Right. Things could be done to stop it from spreading too quickly. So the. Some of this sequencing is actually happening in New York, in in Queens, right? Talk to us about the Pandemic Response Lab and the work that they do. It's Pearl for those of us who are cool, Joel. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So Pearl, as it's called, this was an effort by a company called Opentrons. They do, they create robots that help automate labs. And they basically applied to be a COVID testing center. And they became this Pandemic Response Lab. And they were a COVID testing center for New York City. And they augmented the city health efforts. And that started in the fall. And what happened was early on, they thought, okay, but let's figure out what's going on with mutations. So they tried to, you know, convene with health officials and figure out if they could get some money to start sequencing. And there was just no money for it. Again, coming back to the initial issue of money. Right. So because there's no money for it, but they were actually in a good position, they had a lot of the technology, they decided to set this up and do the sequencing on their own dime. to to start out. And so they're doing the sequencing and they're giving New York all their data and now they're participating in trying to get funding from other sources, but they did it basically on their own dime, which is pretty remarkable when you consider that's not how businesses typically operate. Right. Who else is doing a good job of this in the US? There's states that are doing better than others, but there's still not there's still a lot of limitations within state-based systems, but Michigan has a really strong system, but it still takes up to two weeks to identify and communicate a variant through the system that Michigan set up. But they are one of the bigger systems. There are some big labs around the country doing a lot of it, like Scripps in California. Um, There's different um, 
the Chan Zuckerberg group was doing it for a while. Now they're trying to move into helping educate labs around the country and get up and going. But there are definitely a lot of places that are doing it. The problem is there there's a lack of cohesion to create something that we would consider really a system through which these folks are all participating in the same way. That's Bloomberg News U.S. healthcare reporter Cynthia Kuhn. She wrote that story. She joined us along with the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Up next, a continuation of our latest installment of the BW Talk series, this one with Raytheon Technology CEO Greg Hayes. This about the success of a major aerospace and defense industry merger that came together in the early days of the pandemic. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. This week in the magazine, another edition of BW Talks with the chairman and CEO of Raytheon Technologies. We're talking about Greg Hayes. He finds himself at the helm of the second largest defense company in the United States. We featured some of that conversation last week, Tim, a little bit of a teaser. And now here's part two of the executive's in-depth interview on the cutting edge of military technology. Also, his reflections on guiding his old company. United Technologies into a $123 billion merger with Raytheon last April, just as the pandemic was grounding flights and the aerospace business came to a near standstill. What is transitory? Is that a word that CEOs can get their head around? You know, I, I asked that question you know, several weeks ago when I first heard uh, Chairman Powell talk about the effect of transitory price increases. And I my concern there is what is really transitory? Because if you start to see inflation in labor, that's not transitory because labor costs don't go down. They may go up more slowly, but what we're seeing right now is a lot of, pre- or a lot of cost pressure uh, at the very low end of the, the labor scale. And I don't think that goes away. Now, will that translate into higher prices across all of the, the economic spectrum? I don't know. But we're also we're seeing inflation in commodities mm-hmm. in some of the raw materials as well. It's impacting what you guys are doing. Absolutely, every day. And so I, I worry the transitory, especially with all of these deficits that we you know two, we're talking two and a half trillion dollar deficits. We're pumping a lot of money into the economy. People are flush with cash. They're going to spend it. That's going to drive prices up. Are we going to get off of that drug soon? I don't think so. Would you go as so far to say that Fed policy is wrong based on what you're seeing in terms of economic growth and momentum from your clients and customers? Well, I don't know that I would say Chairman Powell is necessarily wrong. I think we have to think about not just Fed policy, monetary policy, but fiscal policy. That is, how much can we continue to borrow mm-hmm. and, and burden the next generation and the generation after that with these huge deficits? just to satisfy our, our desire to have faster growth today. Is it better to have slower, steadier growth that is more sustainable? And I think that's the that's the calculus we have to think about. There's, it's not just monetary, it's fiscal policy as well. So when you look at the economic growth trajectory, or trajectory, excuse me, over the next six to 12 months, how does it look to you? That's great. I mean, if, as I think about it, and we, you know, we have two businesses at Raytheon Technology. We have a commercial aerospace business, right. which was just devastated last year, down 50%. And then we have a very, very big defense business. Both of those businesses are going to experience growth in the next 12 months, in the next two or three years. But I think the growth on the commercial aero side, because we're coming off such a low base, is going to be phenomenal. And I think that's the... That's the thing that gives me gives me hope. But I think, again, the, the overall economy, we're probably going to see 6 7% GDP growth this year. We haven't seen that in forever. And the question is, when you get that, is inflation then inevitable? But do you think that's sustainable, that 6 to 7%? I mean, listen, we're coming 
from a Peace. terrible situation. Peace. I think it really goes back to this fiscal policy. Do we continue to pump money into the economy? Because that is what's going to drive this kind of outsized growth in the near term because people will have cash. I want to talk about commercial aerospace. I'm just curious, are your executives, you and I were talking to how much you were able to work at home, right? You weren't flying around on planes. Planes are important to you right. in what you do. Um, what do you anticipate for business travel? What are your guys doing in terms of business travel? So interestingly, you know, we just really resumed business travel within the last month or so, where mm -hmm. I've been out on the road visiting factories, uh, talking to folks uh, on the on the front lines in the shops and in the in the uh, engineering organizations around the the, uh, the company, and we're starting to see it pick up. But certainly, business travel is forever changed, I would think, because of Zoom. We don't go back to pre-pandemic levels? Well, again, if you think about commercial air traffic, about 70% of commercial air traffic is um, for uh, leisure. That has come back, and it's come back faster, mm -hmm. stronger than I think anybody would have said. Now, you can just you know talk to Gary Kelly at Southwest or Doug Parker at American. The 30% of business travel is the question. And what we think is like half of that, 15% of the total, is mandatory travel. That is, we've got to send our technicians out to visit our products. We've got to service our products. That's going to come back, and it will come back relatively quickly. You know, will we still see big conventions in Las Vegas? Will we still see, you know, get, get together for sales conventions? I, I think that will come back. But there is the other question. Will all of it come back, and mm -hmm. how soon? Our own views, we probably don't see a full recovery in business travel until 2024, 2025. Wow. But again, you know, maybe I, I hope we're wrong. But it's, again, it's Zoom has Zoom or, or WebEx or whatever your your favorite. Pick your choice. Pick, pick your <laughs> yeah, pick your uh, your vehicle. But the fact is, it's really changed our thinking in terms of productivity. And that I think about return to the office. You know, we've had uh, 100,000 people showing up to the factory floors or the engineering organizations every day during the pandemic. But I've had 80,000 people working at home, and I don't think all 80,000 will ever come back. So. This is a fundamental change in the, in the economy and how we do business. There's a lot of deals going on. You guys just finished <laughs> a big deal combining assets and combining with United Technologies assets. And then you took over as the CEO of it all. Uh, and that was just as the pandemic was getting going. How tough was it to get that deal done? So, in, ter in terms of the backdrop of where we were. So you, you have to really step back and think at UTC over the last couple of years, we had done a lot of M&A. But we really made a decision uh, in 2018, after we had uh, purchased Rockwell Collins, that we were going to split off into three businesses. Otis Elevator is a standalone business, Carrier is a standalone business, right. and then UTC Arrow is a standalone business. As we were in the middle of that, those three spins, uh, Tom Kennedy, who was the ch chairman and CEO of Raytheon, called me and said, we should do a deal. Right which I thought was absolutely insane at the time, but... <laughs> but hey, <laughs> but hey, here you, know, you are. Here we are. Um, and it turned out, and again, the more Tom and I talked about it, the, the more sense it made. But the last you know, four weeks before the deal closed, and we closed on April 3rd of, of last year, right. we were working from home. And the commercial airline industry was absolutely in the tank. Did you have a moment where you're like, oh my God, what, what did we just do? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, because you've thought it through. And you're, well, you, I, I think there, you know, there, was, there was a question, because we had made some big commitments to share owners. If we were to bring this company together, we said we're going to return 18 to $20 billion of cash to share owners in the first three years after the merger. 
And it became very apparent that that was going to be tough to do. Right. And so, we, you know, we quickly pivoted and said, okay, it's going to take us four years. But we had faith that the commercial aerospace business was going to come back. We continued to pay a very good dividend. We continued to, to drive cash. We took a lot of cost out of the business. And it was interesting. I, I always tell people, you know, let's not waste a good crisis. And I know that's probably no, overused. No, we've heard it from a lot of leaders. The, I don't the think they're wrong. The fact is, the crisis, that crisis gave us a chance to reshape the company. We were able to take a cost out that we thought was um, impossible to do. So I think, again, it gave us the impetus to do the really hard things that sometimes people don't want to do. So if there's a net-net, Greg, in terms of what you – and we were talking with Greg Hayes of Raytheon Technologies. He is, of course, the CEO. What did you learn from that merger? Is there something and, – and, again, it was like I feel like that was happening and then the pandemic layered on top. But is there something when you do a consolidation like that, uh, a merging of cultures, what, did, what do you learn from it? So interestingly, um, you know, we had an aerospace and defense business at UTC, which was about $45 billion, merging with a $25 billion primarily defense business. Mm -hmm. What we found is that the cultures weren't all that different, but we spent a lot of time talking about values. Because to bring two companies together, you have to make sure that your values are the same. Agreed. So we talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We talked about the need to trust one another. We talked about the need to empower our workforce. These are things that, I, that resonated with our workforce. And it really it allowed us to come together by focusing not on you know, a business problem, but on the values that we bring and upon the mission that we have. And I always say the mission of Raytheon Technologies is to solve our customers' hardest problems. And that is, that is something that resonates with people. When they have a mission, they come to work and they enjoy what they do. Part of that mission is innovation. Uh, you guys spend a lot on R&D. What is the innovation for you guys going forward? And I think about things like AI. Is that increasingly a part of whether you look at how defense systems are operating or, or will? Well, look, you know, AI is table stakes, I think, in, in, the next, in the next battle space. If you think about the challenge of, of the next war, the future war, it's a war that will be fought in cyberspace yeah. and outer space. And the key to defending this country, defending our allies, is having real-time information. And that means taking uh, data off of a satellite, taking data off of an undersea sensor, off of an airborne sensor, processing it quickly, and getting it to a combatant commander in, in, a, in the time frame that he can make an actionable decision. And i just give you one example. Um, last December, we worked with a missile defense agency, and we um, detected, we, we did a test, we launched, or the uh, Navy launched an ICBM off of the coast of Australia. Our sensors up in space picked it up, tracked it down to our ground station, fed it out to a ship in the Pacific, uh, set, transmitted that to our miss, one of our missiles, an SM-23A, launched and intercepted the missile over Hawaii. All of that without human intervention. Which is phenomenal. That's what AI is. You have to have that type of machine learning AI if you're going to be successful because hypersonics are coming. Right. right. Think about hypersonics, right? You're talking about things that travel Mach 5 plus. You don't have time for someone to say, how do I target that? Right. You have to have the systems that know how to get to those things and can take action. And that's the chairman and CEO of Raytheon Technologies, Greg Hayes. See the magazine at BloombergBusinessWeek.com for more. Also, check out our podcast feed for that entire conversation. Find that at Bloomberg.com. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. Ahead in our next hour, our cover story. When Donald Trump called for a big, beautiful wall, a man named Tommy Fisher spent millions to build a three-mile stretch along the U.S. border with Mexico. Now, he needs someone to buy it back. He does indeed. Plus, one of the world's largest retailers is setting aggressive green goals. Walmart's chief sustainability officer, Kathleen McLaughlin, breaking down the company's ESG priorities. This is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including we've got a deep dive into sustainability and ESG. We're going to talk to a couple of different players in that world, including the chief sustainability officer over at Walmart. We're also going to hear on the subject from the C-suite at Cisco. And the co-founder and CEO of Gotham Greens, he is back and uh, expanding the business. Well, first up this hour, the week's magazine cover. When former President Donald Trump demanded a big, beautiful wall be constructed along the U.S. southern border, a guy from North Dakota spent millions to build a three-mile stretch on the Rio Grande. Now he just needs someone to buy it back. Here's more from Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, along with the editor on the story, Jeremy Keane. Tommy Fister is a guy from North Dakota um, originally, and he, you know, he's long dreamed of building an epic piece of infrastructure, and he's built, uh, I, I believe, one of the longest cathedral arch bridges uh, out there. Um, and but you know that didn't really bring him the kind of renown he was after, so. You know, when Trump started talking about a wall, uh, he got himself on, Fisher got himself on Fox News and kind of got his name out there and ended up hooking up with um, Steve Bannon and uh, Brian Colfage's uh, We Build the Wall organization. They built uh, one quick, uh, small wall and then came to this project. Uh, and just as the money was starting to come in for it, uh, Mr. Bannon and Mr. Colfage ran into some legal issues that... Uh, you know, around that around that same year, that that sort of scuttled the project. So Fisher said, "Well, I'm going to keep doing the wall," and struck some deals with Texas landowners, put what he says is 30 million bucks into it, and off he went. Yeah, it's. I feel like this is a story to some extent of a wall, a builder, a radio host, the journalist. <laughs> like I love the way it's told uh, and how it unfolds. Um, what's you know, I always wonder about the pitch that you guys got for this story. Um, Joel, what can you tell us about? I mean, obviously, we've all been obsessed with this ball. We know the president was obsessed with this wall. I think we were all a little surprised that there was to find that there was some that was built. But then you've got this guy who wants to, like, sell it. <laughs> you, you know, I think the, the element um, that really drew us in uh, when, when Simon um, pitched it to us is, is this idea that, I mean, I did not know that Tommy Fisher existed. Yeah. I didn't know that he had built a wall, you know, like, you know, literally. And like the feat that he was able to accomplish here worth, is worth discussing a little bit, which is, you know, there, there's plenty of wall that's already been built and President Trump rebuilt a lot of existing wall. What what he and what Fisher's accomplished here was to actually put three miles of wall on private land in Texas, which is really this is along the Rio Grande which we'll probably talk about a little bit more here in a second. It, in doing so and accomplishing this on private land, that has always been the 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 thing that sort of anybody who wanted to build a wall couldn't quite figure out a way to do it. And so the fact that he was able to crack it is why I think uh, as he go, you know part of his pitch here is, uh, and I think he's looking at the state of Texas at this point because Governor Abbott there is, seems to be the one who's willing to probably do something. The fact that he was able to do this on private land and on a river uh, is sort of, I think, bears a little bit more discussion. And, and Jeremy, why don't, why don't you talk about that? Because the fact that he was able to do this so close to the river is actually like where a lot of the controversy stems from. 
Right. So, you know, Simon was curious about this story. You know, really it began with his curiosity about all this talk about walls and whether they work and that kind of thing. And so he went down there, he got the big tour. And, you know, one of the things he, he drove around with some of, uh, some of Fisher's subcontractors with Fisher, talked to some ex border agents, talked to residents, talked to people who really opposed the wall. And, um, you know, one of the things that's really unusual about it is uh, where there's federal wall in Texas, it tends to be built quite a ways away from the actual border, the, the Rio Grande and the Rio Grande Valley. And, that's because it's privately held land. Fisher struck all these deals with private landowners, managed to build the wall where there's only, you know, a few hundred feet or something like that separating the wall from the actual border. And that, you know, the border patrol guys sort of say that's made it a little easier to patrol that one three mile stretch. Um, as the cover shows, you, you know, you can literally walk around it if, once you reach the end of it. Um, but, um, you know that what what ended up happening though is, you know, uh, Fisher got sued lawsuits that he's that he's contesting. Um, the the National Butterfly Center sued, uh, you know, sort of claiming <laughs> that um, that that there was going to be sort of environmental damage caused by flooding um, if uh, you know in the event of heavy rain because of the way the wall was built. Um, and uh, uh, the U.S. government actually, ironically, uh, launched a suit the, the Boundary and Water Commission. Because it argued that uh, that it's illegal to actually move the border in a physical sense, and they argued that the wall itself could displace mm. the borderline because the river would get would get the banks would change like that kind of thing, and so um, yeah, it's created. I mean, you know, there's a lot of controversy over that. There's controversy over whether it's actually going to accomplish the thing that you know all the uh, that uh, past governments have, have tried to accomplish in building border wall elsewhere. That was Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, along with the editor of the story, Jeremy Keene. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Coming up for the rest of the hour, we're going to focus on being green with the chief sustainability officer at Walmart and the founder and CEO over at Gotham Greens. And in keeping with that, straight ahead, Cisco's CFO on the business outlook and how ESG is part of the company's long-term growth strategy. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody. So grab a green smoothie, relax, because for the rest of the <laughs> I hour. I yesterday, Carol. <laughs> well, for the rest of the hour, we're going green. First up, uh, it was about a week and a half ago, Bloomberg hosted its Sustainable Business Summit Global. At that event, I got a chance to catch up with two senior execs over at Cisco, Fran Casudas, longtime Cisco exec. She's executive VP and chief people policy and purpose officer, along with Scott Heron. He is executive VP and chief financial officer at Cisco. So, Carol, you were there to talk about the sustainability mm-hmm. steps and initiatives that Cisco has been taking for years. Also, the impact that that's had on long-term growth. You began, though, as we often do, asking about today's business environment. Business activity is picking up. Uh, We're coming out of the pandemic. Um, It's picking up rapidly to the point now that it looks like inflation uh, is, you know, is not just something that's being projected, but something that we're actually seeing measured at this point. So I think that the business environment in general is has strengthened pretty significantly, certainly from where it was during the pandemic. And Fern, come on in on this as well, because you're dealing with the people at Cisco, right? There's so many different policies that may be changing and so on and so forth. How do you see it when you look at the economic environment, the business environment, the market environment? Yeah, it's an interesting time because in addition to seeing a recovery across all industries, which is wonderful 
you see a very active talent marketplace. You see people moving. You also see talent right now looking at how companies plan to work moving forward and that guiding some of the decisions that they're making. And so I would just say we're seeing a ton of movement across the industry, a lot of opportunity and candidates feeling like they really have their choice of where they're going to work and how they want their career to progress. There's no, Fran, just to follow, there's no going back to the way it was pre-pandemic when it comes to how we work. It's different, right? It's changed. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to a customer and we were sharing that we don't believe there is any going back to where we were. Um, we do think that both from a company perspective, but also from an employee perspective, there's a realization that we're going to work differently. Some of the research that we've done shows us now that 98% of meetings will have someone who is not in the office. So we'll have someone who is remote. And now the technology and the people practices need to accommodate that. We also see that across the industry, employees in general are saying that they want to be in the office only two to three days of the week. And so I don't think there's going back uh, to the way that it was before. Well, and Scott, what does that mean for your business? You guys, infrastructure, you know, you, this is your world in terms of connecting people. Um, is that good or bad going forward? Yeah, let me start by saying, I think in general, it's good, right? I think the, the there's a lot of terrible outcomes from the pandemic, obviously, no one wished mm -hmm. for this. Uh, but I think it, it proved a few things that had been theorized and, and shown in spots uh, previously, like hybrid work, like the ability to be effective and to lead teams effectively when they're not all sitting at their, you know, at their desk in the office. And so I view it, it just as a general societal good uh, that, that's come out of this. From a business standpoint, you know, the hybrid work and, and remote meetings uh, will continue to be a, an, an upside for us at Cisco. It's to the extent that we're meeting like this, instead of sitting in a conference room, we're meeting using technology. And it uses not just our collaboration technologies and WebEx, uh, but it uses a lot of network capacity and bandwidth, right? Inside the, the network, out to the cloud, and finally to the endpoint in the home. So I think it's a, uh, in general, it's a tailwind for us. All right, so let's talk about why you both are here, because I really want to get into this issue. And we're talking about, you know, the initiatives that you folks have done in terms of sustainability and really how that has contributed to long-term growth. I was looking at some of the, the key points. You launched Cisco Networking Academy back in 97, set your first greenhouse gas emissions reduction goal in 2006. That's 15 years ago. You've put out 16 years of sustainability reporting. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're getting ready, I believe, though, for the 17th. The reason I go through some of this, and I'm only scratching the surface, is that this is part of your DNA. It really has been for a long time. Uh, share with us some of the history of this, of, of how it came together. And Fran, I want to start with you. You've been at Cisco for almost 17 years. Help me out with how it all evolved and came to be. Yeah, so I would say, first of all, it is a big part of who we are. Uh, the Networking Academies was our first real push into understanding that through education, we could create access and careers for people around the world. And it's interesting, the networking academies feed all of our competitors, our peers in the marketplace, and we want that. We're trying to create careers for others. We have trained, if you can believe it, about 12.6 million students since that time. And so this is something that's incredibly important to us. I think from an employee perspective, our employees care deeply. And we wanna have both impact from a business perspective, 
but we want to feel like we have left the world in a better place. A year ago, we created our new purpose, which is to power an inclusive future for all. And as you would imagine, this purpose will guide us as it relates to doing our part, as it relates to the digital divide, inclusion, uh, climate, sustainability, and how we partner with governments around the globe. The interesting thing is that we put that purpose together right before we understood the impact of the pandemic. And I will tell you that it guided us through the last almost year and a half now around how we want to show up, how we want to have impact, how we want to work with our peers to address some of the biggest issues. And so um, I'm so proud of the team um, that worked on this. The fact that our first sustainability report was in 2005 is wonderful. The last thing I'll say here is I think there's a big difference too in where we are today. If you look back in the early 2000s, sustainability was something that you did in addition to your business. It felt like it sat on the side. It, it was powerful. But now the biggest difference is it's embedded in who we are and how we work. And Scott, you're new to Cisco, but you've been in the tech industry. You were at Autodesk. The, the things that you're bringing to Cisco, you've been thinking about and doing for a long time. I came across this quote where you said, fundamentally, believe that climate change and sustainability is our generation's problem to solve. We don't have a lot of time anymore, do we? No, we don't. And you know that, that comment came from looking at the greatest generation and the, the, the issues that they had to solve and you know, kind of work your way forward. Um, this is a massive issue. This is a, a, a worldwide, it's a global issue that needs global solutions. And everybody has to take it upon themselves to be a part of the answer. I, I, I have a personal responsibility to this and I've got mm -hmm. a corporate responsibility to this. And I think that's the way, I, so when I say that, the idea is to spur more people to say, you know what, I can't do everything, but I can do something and I need to take personal accountability for going out and doing that. That's Fran Katsudis, Cisco's Chief People Policy and Purpose Officer. Also, Scott Heron, Executive Vice President and CFO at the company. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, we'll talk more ESG with the Chief Sustainability Officer over at Walmart. Also up next, the co-founder and CEO of Gotham Greens on growing the business and product line. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. You know we like to talk a lot on Bloomberg Business Week about how the world is changing, being disrupted, right, Tim? We do. And one thing we also like to talk about is food production mm -hmm. and where the food is going to come from that's going to feed the world. And one voice we've leaned on to know more about this is Viraj Puri, co-founder and CEO of Gotham Greens, which is growing plants in climate-controlled hydroponic greenhouses. We've got an update on last year's capital raise and the business overall. It's going very well. We are under construction for several large-scale climate-controlled greenhouse facilities that we're building um, in cities uh, across America to grow high-quality, perishable, fresh produce using a fraction of the water compared to conventional farming. So we raised an $87 million or so capital raise uh, in the third quarter of last year, busy putting it to use. There have been a lot of 
supply chain issues with construction materials. We've seen a lot of congestion uh, in the ports for imported materials. So it's certainly been challenging, but Mm. the time is ripe given all the drought that's going on and all these other supply chain issues on the produce side for us to really get these greenhouse buildings up and operational and getting healthy food into supermarkets um, as soon as possible. Got a million questions. How much less water? Remind our audience how much less, because this is real. And I, uh, I, you know, coming off of our conversation about Jeff Bezos, you know, going up into space, uh, increasingly we are having conversations about our climate. It's real. Uh, and the impact it's having on food access, food sustainability, how much less water remind our guys, uh, how much you guys use or less that you use? Yeah. So we use about 95% less Mm -hmm. water than conventional farming. So in other words, Gotham greens can grow a full head uh, of lettuce, a mature head of lettuce in one of our company owned greenhouses using under two gallons of water and out in the field in say California or Arizona where, where these crops are typically grown, it would require about 40 gallons of water. So as water continues to become a more scarce resource, uh, you know, we and others believe that this form of farming is going to play a much greater role to come. I mean, where this drought conditions right now are more widespread than at any point in like the last 25 years. So right. it's, it's significant. Are you guys net neutral on the environment though? Yeah, where we're winning in addition to the water conservation is really on land use. Okay. So. There's been a lot of talk about regenerative farming, right, Mm -hmm. which is basically allowing farmland to sequester carbon um, and keep carbon in in the ground and in the soil, right? And by by growing in these high-tech greenhouses, we don't need to use arable land. We can use city property. We can use asphalt, concrete, all these types of things because we don't grow in the soil. Right. And we can locate these farms anywhere. And what we can grow in one acre of our greenhouses would require about 30 acres out in the field. So... Uh, I think from a land use perspective, greenhouse farming comes on top. And we've looked at a lot of different types of indoor farming. And we've actually selected greenhouses uh, deliberately because we rely on natural sunlight to grow for photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. So from an energy perspective, it uses considerably less energy than other forms of of climate-controlled indoor farming. And we have a commitment to source 100% of our electricity from renewable sources. So a combination of the renewable energy, the equipment selection, as well as our proximity to market really keeps a lot of trucks off of the road. And so, you know, 98% of the lettuce today in the U S and Canada uh, is shipped an average of 3000 miles from farm to supermarket. It's a lot of carbon emissions there. Uh, conversely for a Gotham greens greenhouse, we're shipping probably a hundred miles at most from greenhouse to, to supermarket distribution center. So uh, a lot fresher product, let less food waste and less emissions in the transportation. Viraj, can we ultimately grow everything this way? Technically, you can grow anything this way, but that doesn't mean you should. Not everything is sort of commercially viable. Currently, okay. where, the, where the technology and the seed variety and where the genetics are, are primarily on leaf crops, so all of your lettuces, leafy greens, herbs, and then vining crops like tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers. Mm-hmm. These are very large total addressable markets. We're looking at over $25 billion market just in the U.S. and Canada alone. And many believe that strawberries and other types of uh, fruits and vegetables are, are going to be commercially viable soon. So very large addressable markets can be supported by this technology, but mm-hmm. certainly not it's not a silver bullet or a panacea for all types of food production. But it's a very important 
um, tool in the overall toolkit, we believe, for a much more sustainable um, and secure food supply going forward. All right. So I got to ask, your latest expansion in the foods that you're doing is two new plant-based dairy-free salad dressings. Why are you doing that? It's a vegan Caesar and a vegan ranch. It is the consumer tailwinds are staggering. The amount of people who really want to transition to a plant-based diet and eat less dairy, less meat products um, and things. It's, it's really staggering the amount of um, mm-hmm. consumer tailwinds behind this. That's Viraj Puri, co-founder and CEO of Gotham Greens. Full transparency, I eat their greens. So do I. All right, coming up, more on the green economy, this time from a giant in the retail space that's leaning in big time as well on being a regenerative company. Walmart's chief sustainability officer joins us. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. They are the nation's biggest private employer, well-known household corporate name, one also known big time to our financial and investment audiences. Tim, we're talking Walmart. It's also a company that's on a mission to become a regenerative company. We talked about that with Walmart Executive Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer Kathleen McLaughlin. Yeah, well, you know, our focus when it comes to ESG really is on shared value, meaning how do we as a business address the issues that are most important to our stakeholders, the societal issues that are relevant to our business, important to the stakeholders, or we can make a difference through our business. And boy, what a year it's been. Um, COVID, obviously, climate, uh, what we're hearing about nature, equity, economic opportunity for people, you know, we've had it all. And um <laughs> You know, in many ways, when when COVID really struck, we thought, gosh, this is going to make things really challenging. We have to take a step back. If anything, it's actually strengthened our resolve and had us go faster on just about everything. Well, you know, that's a great point. And I do wonder this last year laid bare things that we knew were already existing in our society, but nonetheless kind of hit us, bam, in the face because we were all at home and kind of taking it in or feeling it. Has it helped in terms of the timelines and the aggressiveness that you can apply to ESG goals at your company? Yeah, it has. You know, as you say, it really has been a moment when all of us um, you know, had to sit back and take notice. And, and I think we realized a few things. One is the power of individual action. You know, everybody acting together can really turn the corner on something that's global in scale. We learned that with COVID, we're seeing the same thing with climate or equity or other things. So it really did help us um, elevate our ambition. And in many ways, we have moved faster. So, you know, for example, in terms of the response to COVID, um, our first concern was associate safety and could we even continue to operate right. in terms of PPE and protective equipment, plexiglass, all those kinds of safeguards, um, additional emergency paid time off, leave policies, hiring an additional 500,000 people to put some slack in the system and make it easier for folks to stay home if they felt they needed to and so on. So all of those kind of things. But in terms of our omni-channel transformation to serve the customer well, in a contactless way, we accelerated our expansion of OGP, for example, uh, online grocery pickup sites. And we now offer that in 3,750 locations. Wow. So right. yeah, we moved faster on that. You know, in terms of climate, we elevated our ambition. We were the first retailer years ago, back in 2016, to set a science-based target for emissions reduction. Um, this last year, we elevated our ambition and said, okay, let's set 2040 
as a date to get to zero emissions in our own operations, not net zero, but zero. Mm-hmm. And let's go faster. You know, um, we did set out uh, a broader aspiration to be to become a regenerative company, which for us means needing to go beyond just being sustainable, but actually build back, whether you're talking about climate or natural ecosystems or equity. Kathleen, and, you know, that's of- huge, right? Like, it's not just about reducing your impact, but then kind of bringing back our climate and our environment. Right. Right. That's just one example. You know, we're now at a point we know from the science that we actually need to draw down emissions, you know, not mm-hmm. just avoid um, further emissions. So it's a, it's a higher bar. And similarly on equity, you know, we um, all felt the impact in a very visible way of what happened with George Floyd and like many others, it caused us to reconsider what could we do? What could, more could we do with the assets that we have, whether right. it's our jobs, our purchase orders around equity? And it's, it's not a matter of holding steady on equity. We got a lot of work to do, right, <laughs> to elevate people and to redress some of the wrongs of the past and, and really address drivers of systemic racism. Hey, I wanted to ask you, because you pointed out that you guys are working towards zero emissions across your global operations by 2040, you know, without relying on all of those carbon offsets that a lot of companies put into effect and use. Why does it take, help me out here, so that's what, 19 years from now, um, part of me wants to say, and and to be fair, I ask this of all the companies when we talk ESG and all the big companies like yourself, why does it take so long? What is so difficult? Because most scientists are saying we're running out of time. If you look at what's going on in the Pacific Northwest, just this like couple of weeks, the flooding in Germany, the flooding in China, Yeah, we just maybe don't have another 20 years. Yeah. So let's be clear. 2040 is the date we'll hit zero in scope one and two. It's not the date that, you know, we'll start working on stuff. So right. And scope one and two is so direct that, impact and indirect impact, like through suppliers and things, correct? Um, that's scope three. So our okay. science-based target covers all of it. So yeah. here's, here's what we're doing. And here's you know, to answer your question about 2040. So for our own operations, that includes the electricity to power our stores, and our DCs, you know, fulfillment centers and so on. It's our on-site fuels, it's refrigeration equipment, refrigerants, and it's the tractor trailers you see on mm-hmm. the road that are labeled Walmart, right? It's the heavy rigs that are carrying products around. So all of that getting to zero takes time. Some mm-hmm. of it goes fast. And by the way, we're working on it every day. So the science-based target has us reducing emissions every year. It's not as if we wait. So you'll see if you look at our reporting, We've reduced our um, cumulative emissions since 2015 substantially. You know, right, we started right. on this. And every year we reduce further. Ooh. What will take the longest and what requires a technical breakthrough in those categories right. is the long-haul transportation. And Kathleen, you know, it is impressive. You go to your website and you look at the different, you know, programs and initiatives that you guys are working on specifically and making progress uh, in when it comes to your impact on the environment. I do wonder when you set out goals, we had a, an interesting Bloomberg story uh, last week that just said governments need to get more proactive, that we almost need a response to climate and ESG. We need the government to kind of create crisis programming just like they did for the pandemic to get to, to be able to kind of help the world and companies get to goals faster. What's the company's take on that? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Science-based government policy that's consistent, sets out a, a predictable operating environment and creates the appropriate incentives, you know, again, aligned with the science is needed. 
Um, we saw it in COVID. I think the same can be said for climate. Um, so having some type of mechanism to encourage climate action is something we would really welcome. Are there any specific initiatives that you think that the government could be helpful on? Well, I think what you raised in terms of climate action, um, and, you know, I'm not a policymaker. I, I don't know the specific mm. you know, public policy mechanisms that would be best, but something that would um, encourage climate action in line with what we need to get to around a one and a half degree warming scenario. You know, that's what we're shooting for through our own actions. And, you know, I'd say we're, we're going to do what we're doing in line with the science regardless, but I think it would help, especially in some of these areas. I mentioned transportation as one where we need technological innovation to actually achieve our goal by 2040 for certainly long-haul transportation. Having a favorable policy environment for something like decarbonizing transportation would be just an example. Well, it's interesting, too, because I've been talking, um, we had a Bloomberg Global Sustainable Summit here recently and talking with the Cisco CFO and the CFO over at AB InBev and their chief sustainability officers as well. And, you know, there's lots of conversations about, you know, using government policy maybe to impact truckers to some extent because they create the the most usage and destruction, if you will, to our roadways when we're talking about infrastructure and how by doing so that might help create more innovation, right, to a more sustainable way. And so I hear what you're saying when it comes to trucking because that's a big initiative and you do wonder whether, you know, government policy along those lines can make a difference, right? Right. So, yeah, and then, you know, coming back yeah, go to ahead. something you were asking me before the, the break in terms of emissions reduction, um, you asked a really good question, which is, gosh, doesn't 2040 seem late? <laughs> Certainly would be late for the action. But the science-based target set out a trajectory that we are following that has us reducing, um, you know, day by day. So, for example, our most recent reporting of our calendar year 2019 emissions, we're down over 12% versus where we started in our 2015 baseline. And Mm -hmm. we're about to come out with our latest numbers for 2020, which you'll see a further decrease. So um, uh, please don't take me as suggesting we wait till 2040. We're, We're moving as quickly as we can day by day. That's the that's the date we get to zero on our scope one and two. Well, and I have to say what really caught my attention, and we were talking about this in our planning, is you guys are committed to protecting, restoring 50 million acres of land, 1 million square miles of ocean. Uh, you know, you are doing these things um, aggressively. You're thinking about our, our community at large. What really moves the needle, do you think, when it comes to reducing our world, our corporate world, our everyone's impact on the environment. We're now, we're now learning that natural ecosystems are as challenged as climate. Mm-hmm. So that's why we set that goal. And it is about rewiring food production, production of other products, so that the way we do that is regenerative to nature. We enhance soil health. We can improve water quality. We can improve biodiversity. That's what's needed. And our secret sauce is Walmart, and we invite other companies to do this too, is to connect the big goals that we have to achieve as society to the practical action we can take through, you know, in our case, business, the retail business. Mm-hmm. And it's true for any company. And that's really what ESG is about and recognizing that those things create value, financial value for the company, as well as help society address these tough challenges. That's Walmart Executive Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer Kathleen McLaughlin. That wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg. 
Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. Also, check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find it at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Business Week is available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. You can also see me at Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend. Stay safe, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.